0: You are listening to the Singleton Noise Podcast on the ProSoundWeb Podcast Network. Sponsored by Audix. I wish I could break
1: Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast on ProSoundWeb. Uh, I'm joined by our good friend Willa Snow. Willa, what's going on?
0: Hello. How you doing, Michael?
1: I'm good. It's it's an early morning recording session this week, so mm-hmm. thank you for for pulling yourself out of bed and you got the old trusty glasses on and you got your coffee, so we're ready to go. I, I'm <laughs> here for Austin? it, man.
0: Austin is <laughs> it, it's it's moist. It is humid. Oh. And is mosquito ridden. We've got the offshoots from the, the little hurricane going on. I don't know if you've heard of Hurricane Hannah, but that's kind of coming through Texas just a bit. Um, so, No, I
1: haven't. This is the first I've heard of that, but yeah, now I'm scared. We, so yeah, thank
0: you. We've got, we've got a little bit of a hurricane going on down by the coast. So it's just cloudy and humid and gross right now. So, yeah.
1: It struck me when you said moist that that adjective is either good or bad depending on what you're describing because I thought of cake when you first said it and that's generally a positive attribute. Oh, it's a super
0: positive attribute for cake. You have to have a moist cake, but moist weather, moist clothing, moist socks, that's not necessarily great.
1: That's true, and uh, <laughs> we've done it. We're less than two minutes into the show when we've already gotten to food, so <laughs> true to form signal noise podcast. This show is actually about food.
0: Obviously. <laughs> this, ep-
1: <laughs> this episode, we are joined by a, a I'm going to say a dynamic duo of theatrical sound designers, um, and they're here to talk to us about all sorts of really cool stuff in that <laughs> regard, uh, Jason Crystal, and he has brought his compatriot, Elisheba Atup, Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Yay, welcome.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Hey, yeah,
3: thank you.
1: Did I say everybody's name correctly? Because I'm cursed on this show. (laughs) Yeah. Did I get it? Was I close? Okay, cool.
2: (laughs) Mine was perfect. (laughs) Nicely done.
1: So, for those who listened to a couple episodes back where we had Kevin McCoy and, and AB from the Hamilton tour on, they talked a lot about their work with Jason and his role with the production. And um, and so we reached out to Jason. and We thought it'd be interesting to talk to him. And so he's brought in Alicia along with him. And we're going to we're going to just kind of dig into some some general theater sound design stuff. And, uh, Jason, one of the things you mentioned that was cool is the difference between working on sound design for a musical theater production and, and what we call a straight play. And I think that's a great place to start. Can we define the phrase straight play for people who maybe not be familiar with that term?
2: Yeah. And then I'd also love Alicia, but to correct me if I'm wrong, because I think there's actually a bit of uh, very niche controversy on this fact on what constitutes a musical, a play and a play with music, all of which gets oh, fairly nebulous. So I think traditionally, when I think of a musical, it would be some sort of amplified full musical production with songs and microphones and a pit orchestra, live musicians, live singers, uh, performing uh, in typically an amplified sound system. I mean, obviously the amplification isn't crucial to the art form, but it often helps. And I think a play would typically be all spoken word and dialogue. And then there's something in the middle where there is music and there is singing, but it may not actually be a musical depending on the context and kind of the form it takes. So I guess I'd be curious what but thinks of that. Just for everyone's background, I do mostly musicals and Alicia ba does mostly plays so she may have a different perspective on this.
3: Uh Yeah, no, it's funny that we're having this conversation because recently I was reading, uh, there was a Best of Baltimore that came out where they listed a play that I wrote music for and did vocal arrangements for as one of their favorite musicals of the Baltimore scene 20, 2019 and I was I was very flattered, but it was not a musical. It was a play with a heavy live music component to it, but it was a play. Um and ultimately like play musical, play with music, music with play. Um <laughs> it's, we're we're doing the same thing. It's 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 a story. It's a beginning, middle and end. But but yeah, I deal mostly with with plays um i guess i have i have very little correction for you jason just that i do yeah just that you know i tend to do i tend to do what are called straight plays um beginning middle and end a lot of times there is no live music component to it there may be amplification it may be in key moments where you know yes it's a straight play but we're we're at this moment now going into so-and-so's head and we need to, you know, lift up all the voices around so-and-so. We need to throw some verb on these voices. We need to, yeah, do some kind of like bizarre, funky things to heighten this moment. So, yes, plays, but also many times I am dealing with amplification with my plays. The the
2: other thing I might add is that often on plays the sound designer might be tasked with more composition than would be true in a mm. musical. Because on a musical, there is a composer who wrote the piece you're working on, including all the musical content. And on a play, sometimes there's a separate composer, sometimes it's the sound designer, and sometimes it's a little nebulous. So I think that also affects the job description.
3: And and more and more, because uh, I have been in those nebulous situations, I'm trying to make sure... I'm in fewer of those situations by um, early on, before I even sign a contract, it's really reading through the play and having a conversation with the director, the production manager, the producers, if there are producers on board, about what they envision the sound to be like, because oftentimes out of that conversation, it's, it's... oh, well, we were envisioning a live, or, or live, an original score. Oh, okay, great. Well, then we need to talk about where that original score is coming from. And also, I do write music. Uh, it's been a big push to make people realize that while, I, yeah, I'm a sound designer, I can also be your
0: composer. You do have to pay me two fees for that. <laughs> That's incredibly important. You never want to be stuck doing multiple jobs and having all the credits for it but then also you're not getting the pay that you should that's such an important thing to note like definitely knowing your worth is incredibly important especially as a freelancer oh yeah
3: it's it's massive and yeah I'm in that in that moment I'm doing two people's jobs uh and also a lot of times the sound designer I know this happens Jason for you in musical theater world in straight play world I'm still I'm I'm roughly in charge of comm and video, I very quickly am handing that off to smarter people around me, associates. Uh, but then I'm also like taking on, if I'm taking on uh, writing music, it's a
0: lot of hats that I'm juggling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I should be compensated for that. Absolutely. That's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and big amount of work to do. You should absolutely mm-hmm. be compensated for that. <laughs>
3: And I think
1: the other thing here and that, that applies really on all levels even people who are involved with in their high school theater or community theater mm-hmm. having a conversation about what your role is uh, rather than getting you know weeks into production and, and there's a big gap where you thought you were going to be doing something and then you find out that someone else has been working on that or you find out that someone has been relying on you and expecting you to come in with some part of the production that you had no idea you were responsible for so I think um, i think the first step regardless of of the level of the production that you're working on is to get a clear idea of what exactly um the people in charge of the production envision your responsibility and role to be and i i I can tell you that i've been surprised you know uh in in my high school and in college days by something that you know a a miscommunication like that so so i think that's that's a good starting point um
0: and also get it in writing Definitely get it in writing. Yes. I have yeah. been, mm. uh, there have been mistakes that have happened because it wasn't gotten in writing. So definitely always do that. Even if it's for $50, even if it's for 1000 always get it in writing. And if it's during a phone conversation, send that follow-up email just to make sure it's in that little black and white type. There you go. Yep. yep.
1: <clears throat> All right. I, I have a question that it may be, this may be a stupid question. Uh, because i don't have the theatrical context to know whether or not it's a stupid question but there is an approach in musical theater that i've heard from people where the all the singing and the songs are amplified and then the dialogue in between the songs is not amplified um but i know that that's not the only way that these shows are done and i haven't i haven't worked on a production that was done in that style so is that is that a common thing is that an uncommon thing i mean what are the what are the views on that
2: not at all a stupid question. Um, okay great. And, and yes, um, <laughs> what I would say is I think that's really uncommon. I think typically you would amplify if if someone's voice is amplified when they're singing, cutting out the amplification when they start speaking would be difficult for the audience. I think it would sound odd. it would it would really pull you in and out of songs and you know, and in a much more uh, kind of direct way, it might be difficult to hear the dialogue. Um, so I've encountered that philosophy in opera on occasion on modern operas. Sometimes they will amplify actually the opposite. On like an operetta or a modern opera where there's dialogue. I've encountered mm. moments where they will amplify the dialogue, but if you're an opera singer, you really don't need a microphone and then they cut out the mics for the singing. i so I've, I've done some work in that area, but very rarely have I encountered only amplifying the singing.
1: Because I, yeah, I've heard it, you know, on various theatrical message boards. I've heard people advocate for that, and I all I can think of is that's got to be very jarring for a listener because you're constantly yanking them around acoustically, you know. And and this is a conversation we had with with Shannon Slayton when he was on on the show a couple episodes back. Um, y- your brain is really good at adapting to whatever your current acoustic reality is, you know, and just okay, this is what this is going to be for the next couple hours. But if you keep moving those goalposts, I think, like you said, your uh, that suspension of disbelief kinda doesn't work because people yeah, and, gotta and also chase that.
2: In in more modern musicals, the uh transition between what's being sung and what's being spoken is much more grey, right? So like at what point would you cut out the microphones? <laughs> like, if they are speaking an intro over an orchestra, is that saying right? Like, like you have to develop in any of these areas, you need to develop rules for the audience to be able to follow along, and that applies both to when you're using sound effects and what you're amplifying, what the orchestra sounds like. Everything that you're hearing, you need some sort of consistency, or the audience is going to get distracted by the sound design all the time. And I think this would be another area that is treacherous.
1: Yeah, I, and I like. I like what you said, distracted by the sound design. I think that's an important um, phrase, and I, I like thinking about that because you know there's a there's a Bob McCarthy article where he talks about um, people who who say that you know using amplification in theater is unnatural, and he says, well, it's it's the use of the unnatural amplification that allows the actors to behave in a natural way. They can now whisper, and they can they can do things. And if you took away the amplification, they now have to you know project and talk like this and they they're now doing unnatural things so people can hear them um and i think under all of that you know something that i found myself asking myself when i'm in and it doesn't just apply to theater but also when i'm mixing and using reverbs in the mix or whatever um is this is this serving the the art or is this distracting i don't want the audience sitting there going wow listen to that cool reverb effect he just did that's not the point of the show you know it needs to enhance the show but i don't think it should ever upstage the the artistic uh message of the show
2: yeah I, I i would agree with all that and i think you know w- w- what alicia said at the very top of you know there's a beginning a middle and an end like we are in fact trying to tell a story and the story can vary and the methods can vary but the moment you do something that makes you pay attention to something other
1: than the story is probably problematic sure i think that's great and uh, and I mean, that may be uh, as simple as oh sorry go ahead
3: I was going to say, I I think there are moments that warrant the sound to be bigger than it has been before. And bigger means, like, lots of things. Bigger means, um, like, maybe we've done reverb here and there, but in this moment, we've switched over to a setting where like the reverb is real soupy, real long tail, um, that we, like, tweak things a little bit. And I think you have to do that. It's in service of the play. That the in that moment, that's what the play is needing, wanting. Um, it should not be um, oh man, I got this cool reverb. I'm gonna try it out here. Like it, it has to be in service of the play.
1: Unless it's really yeah. cool.
3: Unless it's really <laughs> cool.
1: Well, that's that's something that we, you know, we in in, in today's modern age, we have all these fantastic you know, emulations of we have every waves plugin you want of every, you know, mythical piece of studio gear. And um i am always disappointed when I go to a show and the lead vocals buried, but the the front of house engineers buried in their in their waves rack tweaking the settings and no one went home from the show. Man, did you hear that vintage reverb emulation? That was really cool. That's not what happens. Um and except I, I,
3: Jason <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: The um the uh the example that you gave, I'm thinking about uh, when I was in college, I worked on uh, Beauty and the Beast. And there was one cue that we had where Belle finally, you know, the first time she set foot in the abandoned castle that she thinks is abandoned uh, before the, the, you know, the cupboards start singing and all that. And uh, and she just says, like, hello. And we had a nice, like, three-second haul on there because it really puts her in that space mm. and she's, like, alone. But but there's a fine line where add six more dB to that and it becomes... Silly and it becomes yeah. exactly what you're talking about Where someone's like, whoa That was a lot of reverb, you know And that's not the reaction that I think we want From the listener at that point in the show
0: It's the art of subtlety And immersing the audience in the world That you want them to be in It That's mm-hmm. what that's the beauty of theater and, and such a beautiful contrast To what we might typically do in the music world Where, like, effects Very much are an additional instrument um, in, in the music world I, I have observed that in the theater world uh, especially with for example things like shows like Hamilton where they put reverb in the surrounds to kind of immerse the entire audience if anybody's seen Hamilton uh, live there are surround speakers around you and during certain moments of the show um, when the entire chorus is singing together there's a reverb and a delay effect that kind of encompasses you and makes you feel like you're part of the show and so it's bringing you into the story a little bit more and accentuating what's happening on stage as opposed to just being a different aspect of the show, if that makes sense.
1: Jason, you've seen Hamilton, right?
2: I've seen it many. Yes, I've seen it <laughs> a couple
0: of
1: times. I
2: hear it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just to elaborate on that, that's that's absolutely right, Willa. I mean, there are moments we, all the company, this so other six, com- I say, I'm going to speak in the present tense, there are no shows right now if there were shows there would be six of them and they all have
1: in the big now in the big now uh, and they
2: all have full (laughs) surround systems which we are using mostly for i mean we use it for a variety of things and it varies over the course of the show but it is a lot of kind of uh reverbs and processing and ways of elevating the sound of the show at particular moments throughout it and uh there's not a it's not a very sound effects heavy show. So it's not like we're not doing a lot of like moving sounds externally through the system. It's a lot of like, how do we make the room light up in different ways with different sources? And, and I think, you know, that's in service to very specific moments. You know, like the, the vocal effect you were just alluding to happens about, f- I think, four or five different times in the mm-hmm. show. And at no point, hopefully, is someone going like, those are cool surround speakers. Like, hopefully everyone's <laughs> like, oh, wow, they're really angry and want to have a revolution, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and that that took, you know, weeks and months of calibrating to, like, get that feel right.
1: Mm-hmm. So to, to take a, a very brief... Tangent down the down the tech rabbit hole. How much of that is how much tweaking do you have to do on that effect when you move the show to a different hall?
2: That, that's what I mean. There are a few. There's a hit list. So so there are three sit down companies and three touring companies. And there, there's a hit list for the touring companies of things they need. To, they they tend to listen to when the show moves. And there's a there's a crew, there's a running crew and then there's an advanced crew that helps move the show. And there are certain moments that they basically sound check on every move and one of the things is the balance of the surrounds we're doing most of our tweaking on the show move on the output stage so we're not doing a lot of changing of front end processing of mic pre's of routing any of that stuff happens pretty much locked regardless of the venue. What we are changing venue to venue is how the outputs are balanced and being processed. So we can pretty much say if one particular surround speaker is much closer to the audience in a particular venue and therefore we just need to turn it down, that will be good for the show as a whole. So anything that's going to that speaker, whether it's a reverb or amplification or anything, will be appropriately balanced. So we're, we hit, we do hit through all of our reverbs, we check all of our effects, we hit particular moments in the show, and then, of course, we obviously line check everything. But there's not a ton of, like, we need to hit the same thing over and over again because we know if one particular source needs adjusting, it'll carry through the entire show.
1: That's, I mean, it's very much in line with how uh, the division in the rock and roll world between the, the mix engineer and, and the system tech, where we treat the mix coming off the desk as that's the show, that's the reference, and then we do what we need to do to the output side of the system to, to preserve that. Um, so we have we have a designer, and and Jason, a lot of your work is a, as an associate. So I would love to kind of dig into the dynamic between a designer and the associate designer and where the the responsibilities lie and how that division of labor, so to speak, works. I think that's an interesting topic, particularly for, for those of us who you know, don't work a lot in the theater world. There's y'all have a lot of titles, you know what I mean? <laughs> we we, we don't have so fancy. many titles. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so Alicia, but one of the things you said is like, okay, well, I, you know, I'll hand this off to my associates or my assistants. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, one of the things that, one of the few things that I know about this, let me dazzle you with my knowledge um, <laughs> is that the associate generally has the ability to make an artistic decision whereas an assistant uh might not
3: that's that's how so that's how i treat associates and i'd be really curious to hear about that from jason um so so just taking a step back when i'm brought in as the designer um you know i'm i'm coming in i'm reading the play i'm having Big amazing ideas on my own. I meet with a director. I hear their vision of this play, um, and then from there, like I'm, 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 you know, I give what my idea of the play is. uh, I go away. I start concocting. Like maybe the the world sounds like this. Maybe it sounds like this. This happens uh, if it's uh, a play where I'm just doing. Um, The sound design, where it looks like like more sound effects. This also happens when I'm doing sound design with original music. Um, So I'm going away. I'm musing. I am thinking through what this world sounds like. I then meet with the design team uh with the director and we're we're coming up with what this world looks like what it feels like what it sounds like together as a team we go through like many iterations of this like uh, uh world building this world design until we get to technical rehearsals where um some of it sticks but a lot of it i throw out the window because i'm i'm in the space with all the elements finally Um, and you know, that costume is so gorgeous. And actually, this, this, you know, EDM inspired cue that I've built is a little too EDM y. So let me, let me make it a little more Baroque to, to aid in a bet what our costume designer is doing, what our set designer is doing. Um, I really love the tech process. Um, it is It can be a brutal process, especially the um, the hours that we're putting in, especially once we get into previews, because you're there for an absurd amount of time that every day. <laughs> but it is my favorite part of theater, is technical rehearsals, because um, I just like making things with people now to address the actual question that you asked (laughs) my associate and assistant um, within straight play world I'm trying to think through really quickly it is rare that I am given the budget to have both Uh, which is a thing within within theater world, within straight play theater world. Um, the money's just not there. It would be amazing to have one of each. Uh, an associate, I do treat uh, as someone who, I don't know, they're kind of, they're they are really, assistant is my right-hand person. Associate, I get a little more mind-meldy with, and I want to, I want to get more input from them about what they their thoughts are on the system, their thoughts on the space. Um, I and yeah, associates for me, I want them to have a little bit, bit more artistic say and input in things, especially if and when I need to leave the room for a little bit. Uh, I oftentimes want to need to bring associates on board if maybe I'm leaving the tech process a few days early. Um trying to think of other times I've had associates the big one is if I need to leave the process a little bit early if I need to recently it was to head to tech in another part of of New York City so I had two shows teching at the same time in New York so I was touching base with each one so it was great to have an associate on the one that I knew was I was going to leave a little bit more alone um and he yeah he was Great to if a decision needed to be made, the director had already built up a rapport with him. And so she knew, like, I actually don't need to wait for Aliciaba Ben. Ben knows like Alicia Ba's mind and heart. And Ben is a good person to keep moving the show forward. assistance uh you know, if Ben in that in that show had been an assistant, Ben would probably like text me, email me, like, they're talking about this shift. We can definitely wait till you get back. Just wanted to give you a heads up. But uh, on that process, Ben, as an associate, felt empowered to to make changes without me, and they were good changes.
1: Okay, I like that. I'll, so, I'll, yeah, <laughs> Jason, you look like you were you look like you're ready to jump in. So no, I was like, no. he's going to say something. <laughs> Sorry about
2: that. Um, no, um, no, I was going to say I think. Uh, I would agree that it comes down to, I mean, there are two things. One is kind of interpersonal. Like, do you trust them in hmm. the room to represent your interests when you're not there? That's like what an associate is capable of doing. Um, I kind of toggle between design work and associate work. But my my I would say, you know, three out of every four shows I'm doing, I'm doing as some sort of more technical person than the lead designer, whether that's an associate or, or in various other capacities. But the other thing in musical theater that associates are often tasked with is app actually implementing is the, they're the implementer, right? So if the designer says, I would like to use a sound system that's structured in this way with these inputs and these outputs, and here's where I, you know, Here's where I want to have line arrays and here's you know the certain processing and console I want to use. Then it comes down to me to then figure out how to implement that. And implementation is everything from an equipment specification to cabling diagrams to rack layouts to programming of computers and equipment to working with the engineer on making sure the sound console is routing things appropriately and basically turning the designer's idea of the show into a physical thing that then we can then operate on and work with. So, um, they're kind of two hats, the, the, the mm. and then dealing with the other creative teams. I typically, on, on a large musical will often have, uh, I work a lot with Nevin Steinberg, the sound designer for Hamilton, and, uh, we'll often have an assistant in addition to the two of us, an assistant sound designer on the show and often, uh, I'll be somewhere in the middle between working on the sound system itself and then a lot of the assistance job ends up being inheriting a lot of the paperwork I've generated in the planning stages and then either continuing to generate more paperwork, keeping it up to date, uh, and then tracking through the show, being much more connected typically with Nevin or or the assistant would be with the designer to actually do the day-to-day things while the associate, as Alicia asserted, is then off, kind of able to do their own thing independently on behalf of the show because they have a certain level of trust.
1: So are you... Are you the one who's primarily building the, the console automation and all that stuff? Typically,
2: it depends on the A1, the engineer I'm working with. You know, a lot of them have very strong preferences on who programs the console or what aspects of the console. Typically, the way it, it winds up is I'll do an initial console file in terms of routing, input, output, communication with stage racks, external devices, anything that we would consider Q1 or fundamental to the show. And then anything that's cue-specific throughout the show, things like VCA assignments or individual routing on microphones for certain scenes, that will typically fall to the A1 because they're the one who actually has, has to mix the show. I know on your episode with Kevin and Adriana, they talked about what it actually means to mix a musical, which is no easy feat. But one of the key bits of data on that are how are the VCA's or control groups or DCA's how are they actually assigned and I'll often defer to the engineer on a new production to do those assignments since they're the one who then has to actually mix the thing and that way if they're like oh I can't reach that fader that quickly then they are fully empowered to then move things around. On a, on, a, uh, on a new production, that's true. On an existing production, we don't usually give the engineers leeway to move things around because we'll often be swapping engineers. And if someone who had mixed Hamilton in New York needed to mix Hamilton in Los Angeles and all the control group assignments were different, that would be a problem.
1: Yeah, I I was thinking about that, and I I, uh, shout out to Mr. Mike Tracy, who schooled me on this the other day on the phone. Um, He said, because when, you know, like I said, the couple of productions that I've done, when I go through something like VCA assignments, I was like, all right. so to me it makes sense, you know, with no context on this, to have this character show up on the same VCA every time they show up on the stage, and to try to keep that logical so that, you know, I kind of know, okay, this person's talking, they're going to be on two. Like, that's just where they are. Um, And there's another school of thought on this where the first person to speak in a scene is vca1 and the next person to speak in a scene is vca2 and they just kind of go down like that and I, I think that's sort of an interesting um i know book of mormon is, is designed like that is this thing that i've learned um and i i'm <laughs> i think it just comes down to to just muscle memory and rote but um i mean do, do you find that one or the other approaches is, is more natural to you or easier for the people who are mixing, or?
2: I make a point not to render a judgment in this area. You know, as someone who uh, does not regularly mix shows, and when I do mix, it's usually one-offs or readings or things that will disappear into the ether very quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I I want the engineers to feel like they can make the decisions they need to make because that's the way they're going to mix. The, like, if they tell me this is the way I can mix the show the best, then who am I to mm-hmm. say, you're wrong? Right. So I tend not to weigh in on that.
1: And I think, you know, that's to me, that's one of the hallmarks of a good person who's in a position of supervision or, or you know, uh, you're not, you know, you have good people under you and you trust them to, to do do their job the best and unless they're having a problem. You say, yeah, do your thing. I think when you get into the micromanagement, it can create problems. And that's not just in theater. Um, <laughs> so so from a, from a sound design perspective, I'm really interested in... Um, sort of, you know, we have all this amazing technology, and you know, when you might go to a specific technological tool or technological approach in pursuit of an artistic um, goal. And and one example that I can give to to sort of illustrate what I'm asking is uh, Jersey Boys. They wanted the, uh, you know, it, it's it, they wanted it to sound like the recordings used to sound, where they left all a lot of mics open all the time. There's a lot of bleed between the mics and those studio recordings from that era. And so they decided to use an A-B system for that show so they could leave more mics open and get that bleed without it, it causing all these weird phasey problems. Um, so I, I really like the fact that this whole technological implementation comes from this artistic idea of pursuing a, a sonic texture or a sonic environment. And I'm just interested in, in that discussion. I wonder if, if either of you can point to um, any kind of projects that where you had to make some sort of decision like that. Willa, was that a question?
0: Yeah, just before uh, our friends answered, could you expand a little bit more on what an A-B system is?
1: Oh, yes. Well, I, I feel like I'm not the most qualified person on this podcast to talk about the A-B system. Uh, so I will happily defer to either of you if you want to do it. But I do I, like I'll A-B g- system.
2: I'll give the quick summary, and then I'll let Alicia v answer your question. But the A-B system is... I, I've not implemented an A-B system, so uh, this is purely from reading and seeing shows but the idea is if you have two microphones right next to each other and two people are singing on a typical mix with a normal musical theater pa typically you would only turn one microphone on because if both microphones are hot and you're hearing each person sing into the other person's microphone you're actually getting two arrivals of everybody's voice right so and that sounds bad. I I can quantify bad, but it doesn't sound good. Um, (laughs) And the idea behind an A-B system is you could actually keep both people's mics on and route them to two different speakers. So for every speaker location, there are actually two speakers being hung, the A speaker and the B speaker. And so person A's microphone goes to the A speaker, person B's microphone goes to the B speaker, and at no point do they electronically sum. They sum in the air and they get to your ears, but it's a way of keeping that phasing to a minimum and allowing you to turn on multiple microphones at once so that's what an a b system is um
3: and, and ter- it's expensive
2: and it's very expensive because it's two <laughs> systems you just need to double your speaker budget no yeah. problem <laughs> um, so yeah everyone loves that um <laughs> what was this was about
0: oh you so go about
2: technology Wait, well, and the show
0: can, can you
3: michael can you repeat the question partially
1: well, I, I'm just interested in the topic of when you might have chosen a certain technical approach to serve a particular artistic goal that you had.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm because, thinking, I'm, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, oftentimes, I, I, you know, the stuff that I've worked on is a lot of times it's like, well, this these are the speakers you have and these right. are the mics you have and go right i I can jump in with one stuff
2: i can jump in one with for a moment is um nevin and i worked on tina the tina turner musical that being its full title um and there are that is also basically a two sound system show it's not an a b system but there's like what we would call a play system and a full spatial system so the idea is while the whole show is amplified the dialogue scenes Feel like a play. They're very naturalistic. They're very sourced on stage. Very light um, amplification, and then there's a full concert PA for concerty moments of the show, and and the show gets very big and very concerty at at moments, and gets very intimate and dramatic uh, in others, and so. Uh, Nevin's initial concept for the show was basically two isolated sound systems that we toggle people between so that we can get that different feel based on whether we're in Tina Turner's house or a giant concert um, later in the show
1: That's an awesome example that's a, that's, a, yeah. that's a brilliant example of exactly what I was asking, thank you very much yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> Um <laughs> Uh, so I, I'm thinking about a production I worked on called Endlings. Um, it was first, um, well, I've done, I've done a couple of workshop productions of it, but, uh, we first did it at American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Mass. And, um, if I'm remembering correctly, so so when we we all signed on to the show, and then somewhere, you know, after that, I am given, you know, here is here is what is our system at the moment. Uh, also they were thinking that, you know, this was a this is a straight play, so you know, we're not getting an A two, there there's no additional reinforcement, right? Um, but lo and behold, the director and I had been talking about what if this world was very, very amplified. Because, And there's a couple of things. The director's coming from a more musical theater world, um, so she's very used to the sound of that. Um, also, uh, it's, it's this idea that the whole play is about... Um, it's, it's, made, it's made to, to be presentational, Um, It's made to make people feel uncomfortable at times. Um, And then at times, we also want the world to expand in very weird and strange ways. And what that all boils down to is we had a theater going, you know, this is your budget. It does not include much when it comes to reinforcement. we had to come to the theater and go actually this is the artistic idea we're ha- we're having and it involves a lot of mics. It involves everyone in the cast in wireless. It would also mean we'd need some spare. It would also mean we need an A2. <laughs> So let's let's rehuddle And the theater, you know, God bless them. They were really great in this conversation. Um, there was a lot of shifting around of thinking of budget, especially. And we were able to ultimately get a lot of what we needed to pull off this artistic vision. Um, but yeah, it did mean we were we were told this is what you have. It did yeah. mean us gently pushing back and going, but what if we had this? um and and ultimately it was a if i do say so myself it was a really cool show it it really uh i i think it achieved a lot of what we want which was like it had an almost musical theater feel to it um and also at times it really (laughs) it it pushed it pushed the envelope on what people think of as a straight play. in moments, it, I think it did a great job at alienating people in order to prove some points that the playwright was putting out there. Um, yeah, just thinking about it, like, it was, it was such a fun show to work on, but it did mean, oh, I think, more about this show. We also had a, a tank that uh, three of our actors, four of our actors would dive into. So another thing we had to think through is... Um, we can't just have run-of-the-mill miking. Um, some of our actors will be underwater for up to four to five minutes. So we need to also think about that. Um, <laughs> there were, there were, now as I think back through things, there was a lot of things we threw at this theater. And they were so game to work with us. Um, yeah, and it was a beautiful, beautiful show. Beautiful sounding show. Great sound team on that. I hope I answered the question in some way.
1: No, it's it's great, and I you know one of the things I really like about the work that I do because I'm you know a primarily assistant tech, but I have to mix sometimes, and I have to interact closely with mixers, and so that sort of bridge that you were talking about, Jason, where you have to you have to come up with the technical means to accomplish this artistic thing, and those those kind of two ends have to meet in the middle somewhere, and you know the artistic vision is one thing, and then you say, all right, well you know we have to objectively do some stuff to make this happen, and so what you know a great example is when when you're in the studio um and you're working with an artist and the artist says i want this part to sound i want the piano to sound warmer right that's a subjective artistic word but we as the engineer have to have an objective thing that we do to accomplish that so we you know this art can't just happen in a vacuum it has to has to be supported by some technical knowledge that we're bringing to the table in order to accomplish that so when someone says warmer we need to know what what to do to make that work to to achieve that and so it, it sounds like you know that's pretty much what you're talking about here just on a, on a larger scale um and i also think an interesting point here for a lot of our listeners who are doing maybe high school theater community theater um where you know <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of kids who listen to these types of things and they go wow that must be nice to just you know name your terms basically and and you know everybody has a That's budget you know <laughs> me, right? right your, your your budget might be smaller than someone else's budget but everybody has a budget but i also think one One thing that i I would share is when you're asking for stuff what I've found in when it's a very very limited situation, um try to distill that you know if i could if I could ask for one piece of gear or one one reason to you know um, pick the one that's going to really get you the biggest bang for the buck and really reap the biggest returns in terms of you know uh helping the show meet its artistic goals because what I've found that does is it really establishes a rapport with the people who have to make those decisions um and so when they go, OK, well, he he doesn't ask me for stuff and he doesn't use it like he asked me for that. And I said, OK, and it really helped and it really made the show better. And so I think if you if you do that and you develop that trust, then over time um, you, you will be able to, you know, ask for those things that that you want to get. And I think having the trust um, built up where. When you go, okay, I want this, and they go, okay, you can have it, because they trust you to, to make that call and not be wasteful or not, you know, not not pick fights that, that don't need to be, you know, to, to pick your battles, basically.
3: And I would say, you know, thinking about if you're working at a high school, at a community theater... having come up from that world i think for the longest time i was like i can't make any asks i can't make any asks i will only use what's in this strange room underneath the theater (laughs) um but i i would challenge you know all of y'all listening in that boat to every show make at least one ask even you if you go. don't get that ask the just a just some gentle pushing gentle pushing so then the powers that be every show they're like well you know so and so they made that ask and i said no but i don't know like yeah what if, what if we got some front fills installed okay yeah, th- yeah. Th-
2: there's absolutely value in the training of management mm. like here are the things i want or wish I had, and here's why, right? Like, it's not, you know, if you're just like, I need this expensive software, buy it for me, is very different (laughs) than I would like to use this for the show in this way, Mm -hmm. and here's why, and the director thinks it's a good idea, and we think, you know, like, if you can have those conversations, and management, I'm using in a very generic term, that can be a professor, it can be a theater director, it can be an artistic director, whoever you're dealing with who is in charge of supplying you with equipment or software or money, um, having the conversation. I, I was in your story, Alicia, when you were basically saying the theater company was like game to play ball on this stuff and have these conversations, it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes yeah. it's like, yeah. does that cost money? And uh, no, I'm sorry, we just can't do that. But being <laughs> able to have the conversation, even if the answer yeah. is no, from a point of kind of artistic integrity, I think does a lot of good for the long term.
3: And and to piggyback off of that, me gently pushing on every show I do, even if I don't get the thing, um, training management, like how to have these conversations means that maybe I didn't get those front fills or whatever on my show, but Jason comes in on his next show and he's like, well, we really need to install front fills here. Uh, and here are the reasons why. And they're like, oh, you know what? Alicia Bo was was pitching that on the last show, yeah. Like I, I, feel like I have like a a social responsibility to sound designers to just make the ask.
2: And I always try to do the show directly after Alicia's show, so that <laughs> exactly. I, I'm better set up for success. It's so
3: nice to ride my coattails, Jason. Yeah, I do appreciate
1: that. <laughs> well, the, I mean, there's there's a couple really important points there, and I'm glad that that y'all said that stuff you know one of the things is if you're in a venue and and nine acts in a row come through and say you know you you really need a higher capacity power tie-in or you really need to uh do this with your rigging like if they hear that over and over again they're going to start to go okay maybe we should look at this you know um, it wasn't one person crying wolf it this this you know Mm -hmm. if all these professionals are coming through and saying this um then that's something we need to pay attention to and i also think as the person making the ask you're showing the people um who are in charge that you're invested um, that, you know, Hey, I've been thinking about this and I, I want this to be good. And here's, here's kind of some, some ideas that I had. And and I love that. Um, you know, I, I absolutely want to talk to the people who, um, even if it's not something, you know, if I'm in a position to make that call, if it's not something that I can make work, I, I, I would, I love that someone's coming in and they were thinking about it and they're invested and they've got this idea on how to make it better. And I, I, I want to have that conversation every time, you know what I mean? So, um, I think, I think it's just it's just a net positive. Um, so, you know, there it goes for all, all y'all kids in the in, in the high school theater world. And, uh, you know, ha- have that conversation and, and, and you know, be organized, you know, plead your case, put together a a, a little uh, document that says what you're asking for and why. And, and uh, you know,
2: that's that-
3: yeah. Like, what's the worst they can say? It's just it's no. That's it.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the other thing yeah, to remember exactly. is, and we deal with this, I, I think at all levels of theater is there's always a question of rent versus buy. And sometimes mm-hmm. a theater company may not may look at the price tag on something and be like, that's too expensive, but you can rent it from the local audio distributor down the street for $50 a week or, you know, some a more mm-hmm. reasonable price, depending on what it is. So sometimes you have to get a little creative with the pricing.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the other side of that is I, I, Uh, the company that I work with used to have a contract at a high school that had nothing. And so they would rent every XLR cable in for every show. And so eventually the owner of my company went to them and said, look, this doesn't make sense for you to do this. Like we will rent you whatever you want, but you've, you've paid me $700 over the last two years to rent, these four cables and that's stupid, you know, like, why don't you just buy them? So, um, so I think, you know, it's particularly in a high school and and college situation, a lot of times the people who are higher up in the administration, they're not really in direct sort of contact with what's happening in the theater and music departments. They may not know. So if you go to them and say, Hey, you know, we have 74 source fours and and 60 of them. The the, the lamps are blown out. You know what I mean? Uh, That's crazy. Right. So, I mean, those things happen. And I think sometimes just, Trying to have those conversations and let the people who make those decisions know about the reality that you don't assume that they know what's happening. Don't don't assume that they, they're aware of the issues, you know. So I think there's a couple avenues there um for people to pursue that stuff. So that's cool. Yeah. I'm glad we glad we went over that. Good stuff. Rilla, are you jazzed up to, to work on a play now or what?
0: Man, <laughs> y- y'all are making me miss my job. Ah, oh, I'm just listening I'm, I'm listening to all of this and um I'm I'm making connections like just in in talking about budgets and, and making reasonable asks that is so applicable to all aspects of the industry. Um, I mean, I was just doing a consult for a church and talking about upgrading their system to be ready for live streaming their worship services. And that that's a similar situation to a community or high school theater. It's a very tight budget and it's really hard to, um, Convince uh, the the powers that be, as Alicia put it so eloquently, that you know these things are, are reasonable and necessary, and will make your life better in the in the long run. Um, but. When the purse strings are tight, sometimes it's just what you have to work with. So you have to find workarounds like finding a local production company that can rent it to you for a reasonable price. And here are some ways that you can work with that rental company to possibly negotiate that rate even lower by offering them free storage space so they don't have to truck it everywhere and cut down on labor costs, that free sort of trip thing. Services. Yeah, free church (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And, you know, things like that. And then if you're in the music world and you're working with an artist that is possibly new and needing to find ways they want to grow into a system, but also the purse strings are tight there, work with them to find a solution that is um, you're able to expand on it. Um, later down the road, but also what is something that can serve the purpose effectively for right now? And then how can we grow from there and create a a, a plan with that artist to make something that is also, like not only is cost effective, but it's also helpful and just practical for whatever it is that you're trying to do right then. Um, And then, yeah, so it's just very interesting to make all of these connections. It's all very similar. It's just different, different shows just different styles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i
1: i think um we usually ask this at the beginning the you know how did you get here question but <laughs> i i want to kind of circle back to it now at the end of the conversation um because i know that a lot of young people um you know want to get into theater they want to get into musicals and i know a lot of young people uh you know something like hamilton the success of hamilton really kind of legitimized to a lot of people that that theater is a legitimate job it's not just the thing you do in your club in high school and then you have to go find a real job like no you can make a living doing this and you can have a great career doing this and uh you know there are more and more schools where you can go and study this stuff so so i would say to each of you i guess you know how did you get into this and, and, you know, what advice would you give to someone who, who says, wow, I really love what, what they're doing. And I want to do that. You know, how, do, how, 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 what, what would you advise them to do? Um,
3: I Double can start question. on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can start on this. So, uh, so how did I get into this? Um, so uh I come from a pretty musical family. Uh we are all singers. Uh my brother and sister are actually both trained in in voice, uh, specifically like opera, classical. Uh Sarah does a little little bit of jazz, R&B. Um and I I was coming up that way. I was training in opera myself. Uh at Opera and Musical Theater. Uh and then I was auditioning as an actor for for college. I got into NYU. Uh And it was great because almost immediately I was like, oh, I'm not an actor. I don't want (laughs) to do this. And like, no, like, I I love all of my actor friends. I think what they do is so scary and so brave. Uh, And I am not an actor. (laughs) Uh, But while at NYU, I was in a program that we were very encouraged to check out all the other avenues of storytelling, and lo and behold, I was accidentally placed in a sound design class. And accidental because it wasn't that wasn't really part of their lineup of things. It was a schedule fluke, a system fluke, uh, and so I found myself in a sound class um, with uh, a lot of the technical track students. And it was it was amazing. It was you put on headphones, and uh, at the time, uh, our our editing station was a uh, it was cool edit, Central. so so cool (laughs) it's in the title uh and but you put on headphones and and you start creating a world and it was it was fascinating that you could do this that you could manipulate sound that was mind-blowing to me uh and all to help tell a story So from there on out, out, I was like, sign me up. This is what I want to do forever and ever. And I started sound designing all the shows at NYU. Uh, Pretty quickly, I I realized like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I went on to uh, the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Uh, I had to think through that because that name has shifted a little bit over the years. But I got my master's degree over there. Uh, I'm. I am, to this day, still very much a content designer. Uh, they recognized that early on, so they didn't let me do any content designs for two years. Uh, I was an engineer <laughs> for two years. So I ranted. I railed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And it was. It was great. It was so. Em- it, it's empowering what they did. They did not let me do this thing that I was. Great. (laughs) Toot my own horn. Great at. Uh, They made me do this thing that I was at. And, you know, to this day, I'm I'm not I'm not the one you want to call when you need an engineer, but Mm -hmm. I know enough to get by. And the big thing is I know plenty in order to talk to my team so they can then go forth and implement the system. Um, so
1: important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: I, mm-hmm. And I really you were asking what would you I guess like uh, feedback uh, tips I would give to young sound designers. And that's that's a big thing. Like if you are a content person, um, just kind of uh, challenge yourself to do systems at times. If you're a, if you're a systems person, challenge yourself to do content at times. Uh, just kind of uh, stretch your skills Overall, diversify. I think that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, it's really important to diversify. Uh, and if you are doing only one thing, <laughs> a pandemic may happen, and you can't do <laughs> that thing. <laughs> So it's great to have other skills in your pocket. And that may look like many things within the sound audio world. Uh, so right now, uh, I'm pretty busy with, uh, I'm a podcast producer so, uh, and a composer. So I'm, I'm pretty busy with stuff, with projects in those worlds. Um, I guess other advice I'd have for young people is like, you don't need like the, the latest and greatest, newest, most expensive thing to do the job you don't need all the plugins right now Mm. um you can do amazing things with very little and then maybe every now and then with every paycheck you know pocket a little bit of money so you so you can get those isotope plugins so you can like get that bit of gear that would be fun to play with um i think i have i think i have more advice for young people but i think those are those are the key ones I like to like to tell the youngins.
2: Um, I I will go. Um, <laughs> I started. I was really into band in high school and college, um, marching what band play? And concert band, and not not like rock band, but like you know nerd band. And did you play the flute. Uh, I, I the kind triangle? of found my way to. <laughs> hey, theater. don't knock the
0: flute. Yeah,
2: I, I i married a i married Don't the flautist. Uh, my wife i met in marching band so you know no n- no ill intent um <laughs> but um the uh so i i found my way to theater by way of initially like pit orchestra and then into stage crew in high school and learned about lighting and stage management and building sets and you know, making a four by eight flat, you know, big, you know, important skills. And um, and then I went to college and did not study theater. I studied engineering and thought I wanted to be a, a scientist or doctor or something sciencey. y um, but kept doing theater. I, by the end of high school, I'd kind of settled that that, like, sound was really fun and I really enjoyed musicals and amplification and uh when i got to college i went to northwestern university which is a great school with a great theater program but at least at the time didn't really have a sound program so they ended up needing non-theater majors to help with sound related things for their shows and i've kind of weaseled my way in there um and started doing a lot more mixing and uh it was very much my focus as a hobby. I never really thought it would be a job at that stage. Um, After graduating from college, I kept kind of, I lived in Chicago and I kept doing theater, mostly mixing nights and weekends on smaller shows around Chicago. I had like a real normal person, full-time job. And uh, I decided a, a year or so into that, that I kind of wanted to see if the sound thing could be a job and like Uh, like you alluded to, it may not be clear that you can actually do this for a career. And I I won't say it's easy to do as a career, like the doors are wide open and anyone can get a job. It is, in fact, quite competitive, but it is, in fact, a good job and a good career and one that people shouldn't think doesn't exist. So I made the leap to New York to try to be a mixer. And I I thought that would be really fun and I want to mix musicals. And so I moved to New York. And uh, then I kind of basically started slowly transitioning from part-time random work to working in small off-Broadway theaters. I did some mixing, I did some load ins some load outs, um, small, low paying gigs, but basically started meeting people and starting asking questions and like learning about how the industry works. And yeah, and eventually started connecting with more folks. And then it becomes a big networking game, right? It becomes who, you know, who did you work with on that last gig? And do they need someone for another gig? And were you nice? And did you treat them well? And did you get along with folks? And did you have good ideas? And, you know, it. a lot of it has to do with how you deal with other people more necessarily Mm -hmm. than how you uh, do with sound. You know, the sound is important, but if you're a jerk... No one cares how good your sound is, and or hopefully <laughs> rarely. Um, but um, so I guess that transitioned into just working on bigger, bigger shows with more and more people. And now that's what I do full time with my life, uh, which I guess would transition into the advice part of the question, which is to treat people well, you know, like learn things, ask questions. Um, if you don't understand something, You should learn about it either by asking the person who is an expert in it or at minimum Googling it when you get home and being like, how did that thing work? Or like, what were they doing? You know, like most people I've encountered in this industry are quite friendly. And those that aren't, you probably don't want to work with anyway. So I guess I would say you should feel free to just ask questions, learn and deal well with people and all of the sound stuff will follow from that.
1: Amen. That's so great. I, I mean, I think every professional advance I've ever gotten has been because I called someone up and just, you know, just badgered them with questions. That's just, you know, that's, you know, why not? Right. Like, so actually it was, uh, when my girlfriend took me to a preview of the share show, cause she was working on that. Um, I looked back at, at, uh, mixed position and the, I said, I think that's Nevin Steinberg. Um, and so I literally just walked over there. And I said, hi are you nevin steinberg <laughs> he says i am and i said hi and i shook his hand and then i ran away because i was nervous so that
3: was but that's, uh... i i did that to nevin as well at uh at usitt in houston maybe i just i was like hello you are nevin steinberg i would like to say hi to you it was
2: very very awkward and he then acknowledged that he was in fact nevin steinberg, in I fact of, nevin yes. steinberg. Yes, he confirmed his identity <laughs>
1: But I think you know. I think that's such an important. I, I, I've never encountered anyone in our field who was like, "Get out of here! I don't want to talk to you." Uh, I mean, it's not always a great time, but saying like, "Yeah, here's my email," or "You know, give me a call." Um, people are just generally so happy to share their knowledge and to talk shop. And I just wanted to dispel the rumor that people say, "Oh, I, you know, you you looked busy. I didn't want to bother you." I'm like, look, the the best thing in my life is when someone wants to talk about like nerdy sound stuff that's i i love talking about that so you're absolutely not bothering me there's also
2: always the good sensitive approach which is hey when you have a minute i'd love to ask you a couple questions let me know when is good and that way you know you're not interrupting someone you're being respectful but you're also not like barging in and i think in those circumstances almost anybody would say yeah cool maybe Mm -hmm. on the lunch break or some
1: version of that absolutely do it kids don't be scared don't be scared (laughs) get out there and do it yep
0: I mean we're all nerds. And what do nerds What 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 is a nerd? A nerd is someone who's extremely passionate. Let, let's let's expand on this. A nerd is someone who's extremely passionate about whatever it is that they love. And if you love something, you want to share it and it's so fun to just talk about sound or design or anything that that it is that we're doing we love to share that with people um so jason you hit the nail on the head there by having that 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 polite discretion of hey when you have a moment i would love to talk to you about this more often than not the answer is going to be yes or no today is not good but here's my card email me or text me or something like that i mean just getting your foot in the door and respecting the person and just being like hey this is awesome. I, I loved what you did here. Would love to talk to you more. And then you know, fo- and then make sure you follow up with that person. Keep that connection alive because our, our industry is one of connections and word of mouth. And if you can get your foot in the door and just talk to people, more often than not, that's going to be super helpful down the road.
1: Hey, didn't you get a gig like that, Willa? Didn't you just literally go up to a band and be like, I would like to mix you?
0: Well, actually, you? basically, <laughs> yes. Uh, they it was they came into one of my clubs that I worked for, and uh, that I'm a front of house and monitor engineer for them. And uh, I just melted when they played. It was, oh, my God. They were so amazing. And uh, afterwards, I was like, hey, so have you thought about having your own sound engineer? Because I would love to do that for you. And I, uh, I convinced them to go out for a beer with me. And I basically just begged them to let me mix for them and I'm like, please, (laughs) I have to mix you and it worked and they're they're some of my dearest friends and uh, it's really fun to work with them Uh, and it's kind of a dream situation. I mean, it's not like a paying gig, but for me, it's like I don't even care. I'm just so happy to be there mixing this amazing music and i get my face melted off every single show and i'm loving the the experience of finally like being able to hone in a sound and really get to know that music and and you know i'm gonna put in this effect right here just to make her voice really big and then i'm gonna double patch the guitar because obviously the guitar needs to be stereo duh and just like having fun with it and really working with the band to like be their fifth member i'm gonna be the fifth beetle for them so it's just super fun and such a pleasure and yeah i just basically begged them and it worked so hey there you go
1: (laughs) so so don't be scared if you see something that you think is interesting go say hello uh jason and alicia thank you very much for being with us this has been a really cool conversation i'm sure our listeners will really enjoy it and i have definitely enjoyed it as well so uh thanks for being on the show
3: thanks for having us guys (laughs) thank you